Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the worship service that we've just come from, and for some in the group, the worship service that we will look forward to. We do thank you, Lord, for the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that's proclaimed here and how that's so foundational to all of our thinking. Uh, together we praise you, ask for wisdom in this class together, help us to think um, uh, in, the sen- in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And before you, Lord, we ask for wisdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Amen. The Gospel according to Job. We don't often think of Job as such a, I think, a wonderful example of what Jesus did for us. And I will keep kind of repeating this theme because God put Job into this cosmic battle with Satan. And he will put himself in that cosmic battle with Satan. The lamb that was slain before the creation of the world, he's already there. He's already in that cosmic battle with Satan. And last week, the theme was that God will have his way with the righteous. And that means that the issues that you and I face are always going to be greater than our personal peace and prosperity. It's always going to be a bigger picture than our best life now, than the happiness of our family, than the health of our bodies. It's always going to be a bigger picture than that. If you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, you're following the Lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. You are following him into a cosmic battle with Satan. And Job is a picture of that. Now, I also said last week that you don't have to feel like you're in a crisis to learn from Job. I'm not in any particular angst. That wasn't why we chose Job. It's not because I feel like I'm facing a kind of crisis and Job is going to help me through it. I am in a pretty good place. Haven't always been. But uh, so there's a certain objectivity that I would actually suggest is helpful. Rather than being in the midst of a crisis studying Job, I think it's kind of good not to be in a crisis in studying Job. In any case, you can't study Job casually. It may not be a crisis that brings you to this book, but it is so intense. And don't be afraid of the intensity. Don't be afraid of the emotion. I think Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were afraid of the emotion of Job. And they couldn't deal with that. And that led to some of the counsel that I think was really off-based, even though a lot of it sounds pretty good. So while we may not be in a crisis, we can let the book speak to us as it would speak. Now, on your study sheet, I've divided our five sessions, and there is intentional overlap, partly because of the nature of the advent, So if I find, if you, and on this subject, I don't think repetition's all that bad. Coming at it with different words is, is okay. So last week, we kind of focused on God will have his way with the righteous. And Job is just such a wonderful picture of righteousness, real righteousness, grace-based righteousness, beatitude-based belief, that type of righteousness. 
And you will find throughout this book, he clings to that. He clings to the reality that has been created by grace. He will not let go of that. Because if he lets go of that, Job feels he has absolutely nothing. And I have no understanding of God whatsoever. So he, he will be tenaciously cling to that. And that's part of our lesson today. What looks like bondage to us may be proof of our freedom. And then you can see on the 12th, 19th, and 26th sort of mapping out. These are kind of overlapping themes. We learn from Job how to comfort those who suffer. True piety is honest and bold and centered in God. And a deepening understanding of God and his ways is costly. If you're praying for spiritual growth, you're praying with a price tag on that. It's not going to come automatically. So I've sort of recapped lesson one, and I don't. Uh, that would take too much time to sort of even go through those five points. And uh, I have a funny way of numbering things um, in different contexts, different reasons. Um, on, in this case, I number things so that I, you can quickly see where I am in the progression of thought, rather than one point is really distinguishable from the second point, from the third point. So it's... It's more like some of you lawyers, you know, you have every line marked so you can get there quickly. It's more along that line. So you can look at lesson one. One caveat there is that I repeat one of those points. If you're reading through lesson one, you'll see that number two and number five are the same. Um, that comes from a professor working too fast. <laughs> so lesson two is... Our focus today, what looks like bondage to us, may be proof of our freedom. And I'd like to start by just looking at the sixth chapter of Job. So if you have your Bibles, would you, to get a feel, a flavor for his intensity, um, and I would like nothing better than for you to, when you have an hour, to open Job and, and begin reading and get a sense of the tone of this one who is introduced to Satan. Remember we said last week, introduced to Satan as one who is blameless and upright, who fears the Lord and shuns evil. And uh, remember we made the point last week that why didn't God just keep his mouth shut? You know, they go to and fro walking around the earth and Satan comes and before the presence of God and God says, well, hey, have you looked at my servant Job? Huh. As if Satan would not have noticed. It's almost like the Lord is baiting him. Have you looked at my servant Job? And then it happens a second time. After Job's whole family and everything is destroyed, but he still is physically okay, then this happens again in a repeat cycle, and the Lord again says, Well, have you looked at my servant Job? He's upright, he's blameless, he fears God, fears me, and he shuns evil. As if to say, You know, I'm really proud of Job. He's doing what I want. And of course, Satan says, Well, it's all because you have blessed him with success, You've given him a big family. You've given him a great deal of wealth. He has caravans. He has 
economic systems in place. Uh, he has all of that. And then on the second realm, well, he's healthy. Strike his body and he'll curse you. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin. He worshipped. Powerful. Resilience. A simple saint. His trust is in the Lord. He has really, bottom line, nothing else but that. Number one. The reason God takes up the challenge is because Satan accused God of programming Job for obedience. By the time Satan is finished with Job, he has stripped him bare. I think this is so important. There's no earthly reason now for Job to trust in God. Every reason's been taken away. Okay, chapter 6. And I encourage, I encourage you to bring your, covet, uh, your Advent-provided Bible. Then Job answered and said, verse 1 of chapter 6, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, that all my calamity laid on the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low, ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. This would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. My joy in unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Wow. Job is essentially saying, you've taken everything away. Everything's gone. He gives the credit to God. God is sovereign. Nothing's going to happen to him apart from God's permission, apart from God's will. He does not wrestle with the source of this. He, he's not blaming God. He's claiming God. God is there. My joy and unrelenting pain, that's the NIV version, my joy and unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. So it's this truth. It's this confession. It's this affirmation of faith that he will not give up. And how do you think God feels? How do you think God feels? I think God's very proud of Job. He's very proud of Job. I, you know, all of these five lessons could be simultaneously number one in importance. 
so some of us read in our religious ears, our conventionally religious ears, and we think, well, he's, he seems to be bordering very close on, on blaming God and lashing out at God. But we'll conclude that God wants that. God invites that. That's what prayer is. Prayer is the proper place to vent our anger. And yet, my joy and unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Ah, this spirituality of which Job exemplifies is just so honest and bold. I mean, there's just sort of depth in every syllable here. Now, he will long to make his case before God. Number two, and even though God is silent, Job hopes in God, but he knows the way that I take. Quoting from chapter 23, verse 10, it's on the study guide under number two. But he knows the way that I take when he's tested me, I will come forth as gold. Now, one of the things you find in the book of Job is that as the conversation continues, he becomes, Job becomes, calmer and more reflective. And therefore, note chapter 23, 10, he says, but he knows the way that I take, and when I am tested, I will come forth as gold. He's already kind of censoring the answers that will come at the end of the book that, yeah, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. And what I know about God is still true and right. Job's faithful response meant so much to God that he allowed evident injustice to take place. The Lord God boasts of his servant. In the second chapter, in response to Satan, chapter from chapter 2, verse 3, he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me to ruin him without reason. So in one sense, the suffering of Job is absurd. You incited me to ruin him without reason. That's a pretty good definition of absurdity. So you're not going to find wisdom in the suffering itself. You're not going to find a rationale for that. Number three. The question arises, where is God in all of this? God is brave with his servant Job. But does God get off lightly when he leaves God to suffer, leaves Job to suffer? And this is where I see the convergence of Job and Jesus. I would compare their righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus, versus the righteousness that Job has experienced because of the grace of God. And those two become models of righteousness for us. One, the God-man, the incarnate one, sinless. And, and yet Job, blameless and righteous, who fears God and shuns evil. And both of them become models for that. The cross, however, shows us just how seriously God takes sin and evil. The cross of Christ proved once and for all that God took the problem of sin and evil upon himself. 
So where is God in this mean battle with Satan? He's right beside Job. The ash heap upon which Job sits and the cross upon which God hangs. The gospel according to Job. In the 19th chapter of the book, I know that my Redeemer lives. See, I have cheated a bit by putting those texts in the study guide because I realize I'm at the Advent. I know that my Redeemer lives. I'm going to chide you into bringing your Bible. I know that my Redeemer lives. There's worse things than looking like a Baptist you do now. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You can't find something more beautiful than that as a testimony to faith in God. I know my Redeemer lives and that in the end he'll stand upon the earth. Number four, Job demonstrates the strength of his faith when he experiences the depths of his weakness. So when he feels the utter bondage of his situation is exactly when he is most free. Now, he doesn't think that way. He doesn't feel that way. But it is that way. In the state of grace in which Job sits on that ash heap, when he feels the greatest bondage, then he's, why is he then the most free? Why is he most free when he feels the greatest sense of bondage? It's completely out of his control. It certainly is that. Well, let me word it this way. There is absolutely no earthly reason for continuing to believe in God. No earthly reason. Everything that could be pointed to as an aspect that would point in the direction of faith has been removed. Everything's gone, but I know my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And I will see him as face to face. Everything's wiped out, but he is resilient. And remember we said last week, although it's painful, it's sometimes good to ask yourself the worst case scenario for your faith. And we kind of talked about the fact that probably for most of us, the worst case scenario is the loss of a child and then how we would process that. And that's what Job, and that's why it's good to look at Job not in the moment of crisis, but in the time before the crisis. Because it is inevitable. The crisis is inevitable. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And to process the worst case scenario in the light of a resilient faith. 
is, I think, really important in the Christian's life. I mean, we live with a sense that life is only going to get better and better. We live in kind of a myth. Um, you know, it's we're, we're sort of antsy for the next success, um, for the hope for an improvement, for the hope of something else. We've invested a lot in our immortality symbols, um, our kids, our careers, our budgets, our homes. There's an inability about the test of faith that comes. I'm not trying to scare you. (laughs) I'm trying to prepare you. And the necessity of kind of a resilient faith Number five, yet at the point of Job's greatest bondage, he was most free. He definitely was not free of pain. On the contrary, he's filled with pain. Job did not know why he was being so afflicted, and the absence of that knowledge made his freedom complete. Job was free to choose God when there was no worldly reason to remain faithful. He painfully, passionately clings to one consolation, which I repeated before, my joy and unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Before Job would worship at an altar, we presume, uh, the burnt sacrifices that he are referred to in chapter 1, the one sort of particular illustration at the beginning, Many will follow, but the one at the beginning that showed his righteousness, his humility, his repentance before God. But now he feels like he's on the altar. Which what verse makes you think of when you think of being on the altar? I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. So New Testament theology puts us on the altar as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Augustine, in a sermon on the pure love of God, (laughs) there's a story behind this, this quote. I spent hours looking for it, forgetting, for writing something else, forgetting where I had read it in my own notes. Um... And then in preparation for this Sunday, I found the quote that I had been looking for. Um, I will give you anything you want. Augustine, you know, wrote in the uh, end of the 300s, beginning of the 400s, and is probably the, if the reformers would say any patristic early church father that gave them the theology upon which to ground the Reformation, it would be Augustine. So he factors large in the history of the church. And in his sermon on the pure love of God, he has God proposing to make a deal. This is it. I will give you anything you want, God says. You can possess the whole world. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will have infinite power. Nothing will be a sin. Nothing forbidden. You will never die, never have pain, never have anything you do not want and always have anything you do want, except for just one thing. You'll never see my face. And Augustine asked, would you take the deal? If not, you have the pure love of God. 
For look what you did. You gave up the world and more, all possible worlds, all imagined worlds, all desired worlds, just for God. And Augustine asked, did a chill arise in your heart when you heard the words, you will never see my face? That chill is the most precious thing in you. That is the pure love of God. Well, Job didn't seek the test, but the test came. And he illustrates that pure love of God. No earthly reason for continuing to believe. And it's at that point, God uses Job in this mean battle with Satan to prove the fidelity of faith, the reality of faith. This week, we get a magazine just between us. Um, and it's, it's a good, it's, it's a very good magazine. There's always one really good article in it, especially. And um, Catherine Wolfe and her uh, husband have written a book uh, Catherine and Jay Wolf entitled Hope Heals. Uh, she was 26 and had a brain a, a brainstem hemorrhage, almost died, was left partially paralyzed, and a great deal of work uh, in therapy. Both she and her husband write in this. Um, uh, article, a, a description of how they wrestled with that. They had a six-month-old boy uh, at the time. It's now s seven years since the, uh, the medical emergency. And she writes this, suffering powerfully informs who I am now. While awful and painful, Affliction has led to a heartbreaking but beautiful deepening in me. I've learned to embrace the suffering. I've learned to not push back, but to lean in hard when it hurts the most and press on. Pain has been an instructor teaching me deeper truths about myself and God and bringing me closer to Christ in a way I never was before this happened. The pain has weighed heavily on our shoulders and hearts, threatening to crush us, but we've not been crushed. The hope in our hearts has always been greater than despair because it anchors us. Our hope is Jesus. We trust him in all he is doing, in all that we understand, and more importantly, in all that we do not. One day we will see, one day the arc of our stories, one day the arc of our stories will all make perfect sense. One day we will trace the lines of our scars and find them to have fallen in the most pleasant of places, to see in them our greatest inheritance. One day we won't need to hope, nor will we need to be healed, because we will be face to face with the source of both, the source of everything, Jesus. You know, she writes from the person standpoint of the person who um, has the physical affliction and then through the physical affliction trusts. Her husband writes from the standpoint of the person without the physical affliction but has to help in the physical affliction which itself is I think an affliction 
And he writes this, I say this without sarcasm or angst. I mean this both literally and figuratively. As the caregiver for a disabled spouse, my life will no doubt be shortened due to the inherent physical and emotional strain. In my marriage, like every commitment birthed of true, unstoppable goodwill toward someone else has meant an end, has meant an end to part of the life I dreamed for myself, a death of the future, a death of the future me I always thought I would be. For me, the real challenge isn't physically leaving my marriage. The challenge is to not leave my marriage in my heart. In the Christian tradition, there's a story about a father and two sons. The younger son chooses to leave his father to pursue his own dreams, while the older chooses to stay and fulfill his duties to the family. When the younger returns after great suffering and loss, the father is delighted to have him home because he loves him, but the older son is resentful. He stayed bodily, but clearly he had left his family in his heart long ago. The call at the end of the story is from the father to both sons to live forever in his love, a love that doesn't leave. I can never hope to stay in my marriage physically or emotionally unless I daily reach for that which is beyond them both. I can stay because God has vowed to love and never leave me despite all my wanderings. Yes, this marriage will mean the death of me, but I'm able to come alive to a whole new love that makes even the great losses of myself so very, very worth it. Now you can, maybe your reaction to that is, well, that's great for them. Um, wonderful that they have that faith and maturity. But, oh, Lord God, please don't let me go there. The question, though, is, um, you know, you're not as you're not in control of that. Um, and life is life and the Lord is the Lord. And he really does have a bigger picture in view than our personal peace and prosperity and the success of our families. My joy and unrelenting pain that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. I'm confident of this. I know my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth and I will see Him face to face. Job, I think, presents the Gospel to us. A Gospel of grace worked out at the extremity of crisis. Thoughts? Doug, I hadn't even thought about this enough to figure out how to ask the question. But can you tease out, so much you said this morning, can you tease out um, if there is any kind of parallel here? We talk about Job being on the ash heap and knowing that his God had not forsaken him, that he was there right next to him. Um, and 
God was right there next to him, but I don't think he felt that God was right there next to him. I think he felt very abandoned by God. And I thought I think he feels you know and this is this is the quest that takes place through throughout the book. If I could only get into his presence. If I could only make the case. You know, that's what I really want. And it gets dragged out. Um God is there right by him. Um yeah. But what was your question? Now I'm no, intrigued. No, no. <laughs> what the, the the truth of that God was there, um, and the reality of, of uh, and the strength of His faith, despite the circumstances, then juxtaposed with uh, Christ's words on the cross, "My God, My God, why are you forsaken me?" And, and our understanding of the truth of, of 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 His forsakenness at that point in time. Yeah. Yeah, and that God forsakenness is such a deep concept. I think it's both, um, you know, it's relational and interpersonal, but it's also fundamentally theological, the abandonment because of the result of our sin. I think Job is feeling every ounce of that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he is uttering that kind of prayer. But what's so important is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's still the ownership of relationship. There is still the reality of what is there. That hasn't been denied. You know, his wife said, curse God and die. He will not go there. He will curse the day of his birth and in so doing identifies with Genesis 3 because God curses a fallen earth. So when we curse the evil, we're identifying with God who's already cursed the evil. Where there's no whitewashing this to make cancer nice um, or even to make cancer a kind of tool for spiritual growth. Or nothing that. It is evil. It's evil and God will one day wipe it away. If God can make good out of that evil, and God does that, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. But that doesn't turn the evil into good. It takes the evil and makes good out of it. Don't you think that Job, even though God wasn't responding, he he knew that in his heart there was nothing between him, uh, he, between Job and God, that whatever needed to be confessed was confessed, whatever, whatever needed for his heart attitude to be so that it was open for fellowship with God was resolved. And so everything then rested upon God to respond to him at the appropriate time. I agree, and I think his friends are constantly, as the progression of their conversation goes on, they're basically saying, well, of course there's something you did wrong, Job. This just doesn't happen accidentally. God is God. You have offended God in some way. And Job is resistant to going there. There's plenty in the in the um, in his passionate uh, supplication to God that owns the fact that he's a sinner. That's not the issue. But he will not admit that they're right and that he has done something wrong and he deserves this. Because if he does that, then he he kisses his understanding of righteousness and the truth of God goodbye. 
So he's resilient. I have found the more I study Job, the more I really defend him. I feel like an advocate for Job. You go anywhere near to blaming Job, and I'm going to fight for him. (laughs) I just think his form of spirituality is what we ought to aim for. That kind of uh, real openness and clarity and boldness. At the point of our greatest bondage, then we are most free. For my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. So sometimes when we are feeling the weakest, the most pressed upon, it's at that point that God may take the most pride in us. For our faith, for our resilience, for our turning to him, for our dependence upon his mercy. Yeah. I've struggled with Job myself just in reading it because it it just seems like it was not... God doesn't have a big investment in in Job or it was... It didn't seem like it cost him anything to let Satan and Job duke it out. And I think this parallel in point number three about when he took the problem of sin and evil upon himself that it's God who's going through this because of Christ and he was thinking that Christ would take this upon himself as well and it just helps it really helped me uh, kind of reconcile that in my head that you know, God did care about what was going through in this battle well and it helps too along with that to know that God took it upon himself before the creation of the world, the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. It wasn't just kind of three days of intensity and Passion Week, beginning Monday, Thursday, and ending Easter morning. It is. It has been what God has been dealing with all along. Well, next week, we learn from Job how to comfort those who suffer. Uh, may the God of hope Fill us with all peace and joy, and as we put our trust in him, may our hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.